0: Welcome to the Four Pillar Fitness Podcast. This is Coach Phil Houston behind the mic and in front of the camera again. Uh, And I'm here with somebody who I've never met before, who we connected with on, I connected with him on Facebook uh, through one of the groups we're in, Um, but he's got a pretty fascinating background and pretty fascinating practice and looking forward to talking with him. His name is Matt Taylor um, out of Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. Uh, But before we get to him, just a little bit of housekeeping real quickly. If you're listening to us on iTunes uh, and you like what you hear today, drop us a five-star rating, leave a comment, leave a question um oh hell just, just heckle us if you want to that's fine too um so having said that uh, let me get right to my interview with matt taylor matt i'm going to turn the floor over to you go ahead and tell my listeners and viewers um about yourself your background what you do and how you do it
1: hi uh yeah so thanks for having me on again phil um my my main background is i started doing personal training about five years a little over five years ago now Um, and I came to it from a a background in cooking. So I was really interested in kind of the food and nutrition side of things. And, uh, that's something that I don't really put out there that much, but that was one of the big things that kind of got me into this is I didn't like the hours of cooking, but I wanted to be able to still make an, uh, an impact on my, on people that I know and in, in doing personal training, my clients. Um, and then my other background was in powerlifting. And so I've competed a lot in powerlifting at provincial, national and world level once. Um, and so. Just bringing that brand of fitness to to my clients. Um, on top of that, just with powerlifting, you get injuries. Things like that happen with competing in sport. And so I, I pursued a lot of stuff com- and working to combine powerlifting and kind of meathead training with functional fitness side of things. So helping people not only move better, but move better to get injured less and be more efficient, lift more weights. Just kind of generally go crazy with that kind of stuff. Uh, so a lot of work with. Uh, PRI, Postural Restoration Institute, um, and DNS is kind of where I put a lot of my focus and the things I found very helpful with uh, combining that functional fitness side of things with powerlifting, uh, as well as things like uh, FMS, Precision Nutrition, um, certifications that perhaps more fit pros might have heard of before.
0: Yeah. So pretty interesting background. I, I was I was really fascinated by the connection and the interconnectedness. Um, to me, I, I kind of saw it right away. A lot of people might not. May not see the connectedness between powerlifting, um, DNS, PRI, you know, functional movement, right? So, a lot of our our powerlifting community, if you will, they're focused on the lifts, right? That's the the numbers and the lifts and the weights and the things that they're moving. They're not always paying attention to um, you know posture. They're not always paying attention to pa- you know how patterns work and things like that. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Pat Davidson. He's uh, oh yeah, the, the big patterns guy, right? I mean, it, it, fascinating connections there. Um, Guys, clearly hardcore into moving heavy weights, but understands the relationship between you know function and pattern and things like that. And I kind of connected that for what you were doing. So I guess the, the very first question—it's kind of a kind of a powerlifting-related question. Um, how how do um, you know the the DNS work, the FMS work, and the PRI work help you uh, teach and train powerlifting and powerlifters?
1: Yeah, so really good question there. Um- Ultimately, it, it, it comes down to where somebody is. So, if you've got somebody who's never powerlifted before and they're just interested in doing it, um, that's really going to fall under like a beginner, get, beginner category with this, or they've got some strength t- training experience. Uh, that's where I might go a little bit more pure PRI, pure DNS, and really it almost might look a little bit more clinical, so to speak, in their warm ups. Um, and so, with that, you end up with uh, a lot of breathing work in there. Warm ups more single legs, single arm movements, working on a bit more trunk rotation. And then at the end of the session, you're going to hit the power lifts. Um, so you might spend 30% of your time doing PRI work for the first couple weeks, for example. Um, just working to realign because there's the the main idea behind a lot of PRI stuff is there's a natural asymmetry in the body. Uh, most people are going to be a little bit more open through their left side, a little bit more closed on their right side in a nutshell. So uh, with the beginner, spending a little bit more time there and then loading up the power lifts once they're really well aligned or repositioned as PR, I would call it. Um, and then DNS just really falls into uh, the bracing and exactly kind of what stance I'm using with them for a squat or a bench press and how they're loading their hands and their feet in the bench and deadlift and so on. Um, with somebody's a little bit more advanced um, and they have kind of their own preconceived notions on what powerlifting training is and isn't, um, you, you got to get a little bit more creative, I find, just to have that buy-in. so still have five minutes of breathing stuff or three minutes of breathing stuff at the start of their workout just because I find that that's it's such a big impact uh, or it creates such a big impact on how well somebody can move and sometimes with some of my powerlifting clients they're really strong and all you really need to do is reposition them get them into their left hip a little bit more or out of their right shoulder a little bit or whatever it may be Um, that depends on the client Um, but Reposition, spend about three five minutes there, and then go through normal warm ups and just give them maybe a slightly different cue or reposition maybe where their feet are on a squat. Going back to that example, uh, and it can be really simple with that, um, but it it really depends on the client. But ultimately, it's taking the ideas behind PRI and and just applying it to to the sport. So understanding it is bilateral hip hinging, bilateral uh, knee flexion, and bilateral upper body stuff. You don't need to be having people. Rounding their backs and twisting to the side under three, four, five, six hundred pounds—it's not exactly smart. It's just using PRI to create create an alignment so that they have an option instead of always being stuck, super cranked open, unable to breathe properly, unable to brace properly, and just kind of helping them find the middle ground a little bit where uh, they'll tend to be stronger.
0: That's that's fascinating stuff right there. And and you know what? The funny thing is, like for so I kind kind of saw the connection when I was, when I was kind of reading through your website. But I think a lot of people don't connect. Um, the sort of hardcore to the deep science, right? So it's easy for people to be either in one camp or the other. And I think it's really interesting that you're, that you're bridging the gap um, between, you know, performance and and an inability to perform. Um, Or I said, correcting the inability to perform, bridging the gap between performance and function. So it's, it's, it's interesting to me to see that happening. And and I think there's more, and I, and I'm not a PRI guy. And I, and I I, I'm familiar with their stuff, haven't taken their course. Um, it's kind of on my my radar scope among the other million things I'm doing, um, but it is interesting when I read their stuff that they they understand the relationship between, like you said, bracing and posture and things like that, and being able to do those things right. You can't you can't possibly properly brace the body for any movement if your posture is off. Right posture creates a, a misalignment. Misalignments prevent really effective bracing and effective uh, stability. So I really I find that uh, really interesting that you're doing that successfully, particularly with people who are. Uh, as you put it, more more advanced powerlifters who are used to just throwing weight around. I mean, that's the, that's their thing, right? Um, so so where do you so where do you connect that kind of work to say your average client? So someone comes to you for transform transformation purposes, transformative purposes, and they say, I just want to lose twenty five pounds or thirty pounds. Um, how do you how do you really connect that goal to what I what I think? And, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. What what I think is sort of this foundation that you've created that's effective. that's very effective. How do you connect that sort of esoteric goal for people, or aesthetic goal, sorry, aesthetic goal for people to the function and the and the, the, the powerlifting side of things?
1: Yeah, so it, it in the same way that with like a beginner powerlifter and an advanced powerlifter, my ratios of stuff I choose are going to change. Maybe some specific exercise selections are going to change. Um, with my we'll call, uh, more general population, my average Joe clients who want to lose 25 pounds or don't really care how much they squat, bench, or deadlift. Um, there's definitely a component to squatting, bench pressing, deadlifting in the programs that I write for them, but it's not a focus. The idea isn't for them to go take a world championship medal or anything like that. Uh, so that's not where I put my focus. Instead, um, I might treat them a little bit more like a beginner powerlifter with the PRI stuff um, and and the DNS stuff, and just in terms of promoting good alignment because that's going to help them feel better. You know, that's that's always a nice thing. Uh, and then just getting them generally stronger at the at the end of the day, what I've found is if somebody has x goal with say losing twenty five pounds there 's a million ways to get there it, it's it 's not saying you you ha- you don 't have to squat three hundred pounds to lose twenty five pounds you have to stick to a proper diet, be consistent, exercise to retain your muscle mass or do strength training to retain your muscle mass, and maybe a little bit of cardio if you 're pretty sedentary and uh, that 's really it so uh try to find. Exercises that work well for the client, uh, in terms of both both in terms of enjoyment um, for them as well as just promoting general strength training. So having something that I can progressively overload where they can get stronger at it. Um, whether that's a goblet squat, kettlebell squat, safety bar squat, barbell back squat, front squat, whatever it may be, using the squat as an example, um, it's all gonna do for their purposes the same thing, which is Build up their legs and and provide some resistance training focus for them. Um, and some of some of the people I train definitely want to do squat, bench press, deadlift, and don't want to compete and want to lose twenty five pounds, and that's great because that falls right into where I want to go too. But uh, it's it's about finding
0: that balance for sure. Thank you for that. I Appreciate that. Um, you know, and I think you've, you're really you're kind of hitting on what I think is is from the strength and conditioning aspect of strength training focus, I guess, for general population fitness, I think you're really hitting on what what a lot of facilities and a lot of coaches are ignoring, right? Which is the value of strength training for the average client. Um, We see, you know, we we have them here and you probably have them up by you. We see transformation centers, right? So they do 10-week or six-week transformation programs. And it's, it's a whole lot of burpees and, and jumping jacks and just like the most ridiculous body weight stuff. And, and I don't mean to, to rank, rag on body weight work. I do it too. But it's six weeks of this stuff, right? And you never really get stronger. All you really do is take someone off the couch and get them moving. And yes, they yeah. lose five or seven or 10 pounds. And now they're hooked on this program, but they never really get better. They just, they get skinnier, right? Um, so I think you're hitting on something that, that really has to become the foundation for us as a profession if we really want people to have long-term sustainable fitness and that, and I'm, and I'm really happy to see that you're doing that. And, and you, you explain it really, really well. So it's good to people that for, to have you on and let people hear that. Um, what do you think, what do you think is missing? So for practices like ours, cause mine's fairly similar to yours. I, I don't have the powerlifting background that you have, but I believe in lifting, you know, let's lift some heavy weights. Let's carry yep. some heavy stuff. Let's do a little bit of, of short duration, high intensity cardio. 100%. Let's do some breathing and relaxation work and get out of your SNS and let's go home, right? <laughs> That's kind of, yeah. kind of my philosophy is let's get in, let's get out, right? Um, and let's pay attention to what you're eating. What do you think is missing for for us in terms of connecting our, our beliefs to a message that people can get behind? So, so getting buy-in from the general public.
1: Ooh. Um, well, I guess let's outline some beliefs first. So like you said, get in, get out do some breathing work, lift some heavy stuff, carry some heavy stuff. Um, and I would just want to add, apply some progressive overload to that. Get better over time uh, is, is definitely uh, one that gets overlooked a lot because people will say, Oh, I'm going to go exercise. Um, and it's just fine. You'll get tired, but have a purpose to it as well. It really helps drive your, uh, your decisions. So um, bridging that to getting buy-in from people. Um, I, I think it's really about kind of removing our own beliefs about what it should be in the sense of like, I'm a powerlifter. I think that probably the first year and a half I trained, everybody barbell back squatted, barbell bench press, barbell deadlift. Uh, and the variation was you're doing conventional or you're doing sumo. Um, and, you know, I've since realized while well, that might've been effective, there was probably more effective ways for my 55 year old men who weren't uh, coming from a huge strength training background to start lifting weights. Um, so Finding a middle ground between kind of where we want people to end up or how we want to train, uh, and something that's going to be safe and effective for them, and most importantly, enjoyment. Because if they absolutely dread it all, they're not going to come back, and then you haven't really created any change. So uh, I forget who said this, but the best program that you can stick to is the best program that you can have is the one that you can stick to or the one that you can believe in. Uh, Because if you don't do that, it doesn't really matter who wrote the program or how good it is. So. Um, trying to find a middle ground, maybe that's opening a bit of a dialogue with your clients on, Hey, do you like this? Do you like that? And maybe not necessarily having them drive the carriage, but having them at the, at the conversation a little bit, if they're, uh, really strongly opinionated one way or another. I'm sure you've had a client before that said, uh, I don't want to do any kettlebell work or something like that. And it could be that they've had a bad experience with it in the past, or it could be that, uh, they they just don't know how to do it. And so they're intimidated by it. And so you would, you would kind of take two different courses of action with those two separate scenarios. But uh, using that as an example, and just getting a little bit of input, creating more buy-in by having something that's enjoyable and they can stick to. I
0: agree. I, I completely agree with you there. And I, and I think that's um, you hit on something, right? So we all have those clients who come in with predisposed notions, right? They, they come in and say, I don't want a deadlift. And yep when you start to ask questions, you find out that they were working with a trainer who, you know, 95% of the program was deadlifting and they strained a back muscle or they hurt themselves or they just, they felt like crap all the time because they were exhausted and it it just made it miserable. Right. And and that's, you know, it's not fun for people to have a bad experience. There's no, there's no amount of, you know, and it's one of my, one of my objections to the constant that, you know, the, the culture of constant grinding that some coaches kind of um espouse, right? So you gotta grind all the time. No, you don't. No. You you gotta progress, right? But if you're constantly grinding, you're gonna wear down and something's gonna break and you're not gonna be happy, right? So, you know, I think I think your your idea of of giving them something that they can work hard at, progress at, but still enjoy, right? It makes perfect sense. Yeah. You know, it makes perfect sense. Um so kicking it back to powerlifting a little bit, because it's it's to me this is a fascinating subject. I'm not a powerlifter. I, I have worked with a couple. I don't have a deep understanding, so I'm going to admit that right up front um, of powerlifting as such. Like I get the power lifts, kind of like I get the Olympic lifts. I can coach them, I can do them. Got it. Not my wheelhouse, not where not where I spend a lot of my time. You obviously have a deep love for it, so oh, yeah. I'll ask you a couple of questions about powerlifting in particular because maybe you can help help me get better at this stuff. Um, sure. One of the challenges for powerlifting, right, is the fact that you 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 know it's very difficult. I think for a lot of lifters to do more than one of those three big lifts in a given workout, right? But given a time sometimes getting ready for competitions, I would imagine that you've got to work on technique. You've got to work on strength building. You've got to work on development, power development, the whole thing all at once. How do you manage the what seems to be some fairly um, different degrees of overload based on the three different activities, or primary activities that we're talking about, Um, and I see that you you had a great article on your, on your blog site about accessory lifts and things like that. How do you train for all three lifts in a short period of time when you know that each one of them really is a, is a drain on energy levels and, and strength and power or strength and, and and let's say strength and energy would, I guess, be the way I'd look at it. Yeah. So we know we drain their energy. I'm just trying to figure out how to manage. You know Of course. Yeah,
1: I get what you're saying. Um, so generally speaking, I find, uh, you you can get away with kind of two big lifts within a session for the most part, as long as you're managing your rest periods appropriately and not trying to do 45 second rests on every lift. That's ridiculous for powerlifting. It's it's the lazy sport. We can take two, three, five minutes between lifts, and it's all right like that and socialize and all those cool things. Um, but in terms of uh, managing the lifts throughout a session, uh, there's a couple things that are going to come into play. One is going to be uh, how strong and how big, your your athlete is so if you've got a super heavy so a 260 plus um, male who's at like a national level for strength so he's squatting well into the 500 600s bench pressing mid threes low fours that's a strong guy he's gonna be able to generate a little bit more fatigue than say and this is I'm not trying to be sexist but just females are smaller they can generate less fatigue um, right uh, compared to your hundred pound beginner female powerlifting client who's squatting 100 pounds and bench pressing 80. Um, And just in the sense that that smaller female client might be able to do three powerlifts in one session and they'll be tired, but probably about the same amount of tired and the same amount of uh, fatigue generated as that uh, super strong, super heavyweight guy who's gone through a full squat workout. Um it's also gonna come down to just getting if we're going apples to apples with this on let's use the same client. So we'll call it middle of the road, you know, you're five foot eight, eighty-three kilo, hundred and eighty-three pound male athlete competing competing at like the provincial level. It's pretty average demographic for it. Um you can uh it's gonna come down to the number of training days in a week. Um so if you've got six training days and you need to train bench three times, squat twice, deadlift twice. Um, you're probably going to have most of your lifts, you're doing one lift per session. Um, and then you're going to have maybe one or two sessions in there where you're comboing up on those sessions where you have a, a squat and a deadlift or a deadlift and a bench. Um, you, you would generally try to pick if fatigue management was an issue and they can't just go do comp lift for both um you would want to go at maybe a, a main if you're going squat and bench maybe a main squat so heavy squats back off volume so got a big squat session and then follow it up with a smaller bench accessory so uh instead of going heavy triples on a on a competition bench press um if you're in say a general strength development phase you might do your lighter workout of the week after the squats and then save your heavy bench day for the days where you're doing bench fresh um as an example, um, as you get closer to competition, just building with what you were saying about getting closer to competition and developing those specific traits, um, you're gonna run into two kinds of people. You'll have some people who can deadlift first in their workouts and training, and then they'll get to their competition day, and then they'll uh, they can squat, they can bench press, and they can deadlift, and they'll hit personal best on deadlift, no problem. Uh, and then you'll get some people who They'll squat and they'll bench press, and then they're so tired from squatting and bench pressing, um, or at least the specific fatigue from those two is so high that their deadlift kind of tanks, and you've peaked it well, their strength looked really good in the block leading up to it, but they're pulling 5 10% less in a competition than they are in, in training. Uh, so with those people, you would generally try to, in the next cycle, you know, with this knowledge, um, you would want to go through what's called a sport form day. Where you're going to go through all three lifts. Generally, you'd go maybe once a week, once every other week, depending on the on the athlete, um, and work on getting them used to doing heavy singles, heavy doubles, with the competition lifts all in in the same day. Um, this isn't always like your heaviest training session of the week, so you might do like your medium squat, medium bench press, and then a heavy deadlift or something like that. But just get them used to having all three lifts in there and get them used to. It managing that fatigue a little bit better and that makes a really really big difference for for competition day on making sure that they have a, a pretty linear smooth performance as opposed to strong bench strong squat i'm sorry strong squat strong bench and then where did the deadlift go
0: that's good stuff right there that's uh young coaches if you're trying to if you're trying to work with with people who are interested in powerlifting or you're or you are doing it yourself uh, that's some really good advice and, and there's a couple things that you said there that i i hadn't really thought about right so you know it's i've done heavy light or or high volume low volume with the two lifts or and i and i work with four big lifts with my with my athlete clients cuz i were i have a pretty broad athletic um clientele base so football across hockey and kind of all over the place so we do squat dead bench uh clean some form of cleans hang mm-hmm. clean power clean depending on the athlete so managing those four is always a challenge and and for me I've always tried to put a lower body drive exercise, so a deadlift or squat, in with an upper body push or pull. Um, so I might bench with with squat and clean with deadlifts. But the problem with that, as you can, you can probably imagine, is the beginning of any clean is part of that deadlift. So yep. those kids, if, if I kill it in deadlifts, my cleans aren't going to quite be where they where they ought to be. So we kind of flip-flop things a little bit. And I was curious to see how you handle that on the powerlifting side because it, it's different. My guys aren't training for a peak on one day. They're right. training for a peak across a season, right? So it's a yeah. little bit different. I'm trying to lay a much broader, sustainable foundation that sticks with them for three or four months um, with some maintenance, obviously, I and hate, I hate that word, with some training in season to t- keep their strength levels up. But uh, yeah. I know when you're trying to peak on a single day, it's a whole different, it's a different ballgame, right? I mean, it's, it's a, um, a different situation. How do you, so with all the fluctuations and all the things that take place during, let's say, the prep phase for, for powerlifting for a competition. I didn't manage the psychological component because there's big failures, big successes, small failures, small successes during that entire training phase. And as a powerlifter, I'm sure you can can speak to this more intelligently than I can. Do those small successes and small failures play into how you you feel and whether you're ready on, on competition day? And how do you manage that whole process during the training phase?
1: Yeah. Uh, well I mean 100% your past experiences are going to determine how you feel on competition day no doubt at all it's just uh I'd say the magnitude of it um so it depends on the person but uh so if you if you have a coach right so if you're if you're a coach you're talking to your client uh I try to get them to celebrate the wins celebrate the highs mentally invest as much focus into those as possible because that's my job to get those I want you progressing I want you hitting PRs Maybe not all the time, because that's not how powerlifting training works, but over the course of time you should be hitting PRs, you should be getting stronger. That's the goal. Um, so celebrate the highs, put your mental energy there. And then on days where it's average or it's a little bit subpar, take it in stride, leave it to me. Right? That's those days are, I'll tell them those days are for me to learn from it. I want to be looking at the data, say, okay, here what this happened today, you were, you know, less, you know, 5% under. Um, what led up to that? Was it a bunch of stress? Was it uh, a programming problem? Was it uh, that we had to crunch all your days of training into two days last week? Um, all those things are factors. So, uh, from a mental standpoint, I find this prepares my athletes a little bit better. Instead of them having, instead of having them be super, super invested in the highs and the lows, where they'll start paying more attention to that stuff, um, it kind of gets them mentally used to or in the habit of winning, um, performing well. They get used to that, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's great stuff. Please don't let me stop
1: you. Yeah. Um, so then on top of that, you know, I do this a lot with my beginner powerlifting clients who, who've never competed at a meet just because it can be so frazzling before, but uh, like a mental practice, uh, maybe starting four or six weeks out from a competition can be a really, really useful tool as well for just calming the nerves a little bit, setting the, setting the groundwork for success on that stuff. Um, just having them write out, okay, I'm going to do this squat, this press, this press, um, these are my goals. Here's how I'm going to get there. And just sort of mentally practicing the day, maybe about two weeks out, I'll have them mentally practice and visualize walking out that squat, what kind of cues they're thinking about, um, as they're going through their third attempt. So I'll let them know kind of, Hey, this is roughly where we're going to end up. Um, and just this way when they get to game day, the only thing they have to do is just go do that thing they've done a thousand times in their head.
0: great stuff right there. That's, um, managing the peaks right in valleys in the preparation for competition. And, and you hit it right on your past experiences are definitely going to color your experience on, on competition day, but managing those peaks and valleys so that they're all moving in the right direction and generally heading up, right. That's, yep. that's kind of the goal. Um, and that's, that's good stuff right there. Um, so we're going to dig in a little bit on periodization and um, the connection between nutrition and periodization in just a minute. Uh, but first just a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Great. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. I am on with Matthew Taylor from uh, beautiful Vancouver, BC. And uh, you can find him on strongerupt.com is his website. Uh, we've been having a pretty cool conversation about uh, well, everything from powerlifting to gen pop to posture and and all kinds of good stuff. But uh, what I want to dig in a little bit now on is, is periodization, because I've always found that people who come from a powerlifting background um, have a different view of periodization than those of us in the purely sports performance and, and performance fitness field. Um our periodizations really go in, you know, basically pre-season, in season, postseason, off season. Um and basically when we're off season, we load our guys up like they're, you know, pack horse pack mules and let them train for three months like like crazy. Uh you guys I, I think from your with your background, periodization has a slightly different um look, right? And a slightly different function. So you wouldn't mind share with share with my listeners the um, based on your background first, obviously, and then how you've um, adapted that to your current practice. So what's your background, what's your view on periodization based on your background and how have you adapted that to your current practice?
1: Okay, Um, so uh, I just wanna draw a couple similarities here between powerlifting and uh, general sport training like you were mentioning earlier. So uh, in the same way that you're gonna go through your more general preparation phase and lay a foundation for uh, your in-season when you call it, I know you don't like the term, but your maintenance phase. you're still laying a foundation and you're maintaining some aspects of powerlifting training as you progress towards a competition. So, um, except for beginner clients, cause this doesn't really count for them. Everything works. Um, as you get into interme- intermediate, and advanced powerlifting training, you're going to have generally speaking with maybe a couple nuances with this, uh, three kinds of blocks that you're training with powerlifting training. So you're going to have a hypertrophy or a volume phase. Uh, you'll have a strength phase and you'll have a peaking phase. And so, The idea with your hypertrophy phase is you want to build more muscle. This is where you're going to maybe take a little bit of a break from your competition movements. Uh, so instead of doing a low bar squat, you might do a high bar squat or front squat or a safety bar squat, um, follow it up with some lunges, some leg press volume. Your bench pressing might be not a competition grip. So wide grip, narrow grip, some dumbbell benching, some pushups. Uh, and ultimately the goal with this is to just build more muscle, give your joints and tendons a little bit of a break from the competition activities. Um, just by loading them at slightly different angles. Um, and so the idea with this is as you gain more muscle, a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle. So this is your your base to your pyramid. The wider the base is, the taller the peak can be. Um, so once you've, you've laid that foundation, from there going into the maintenance side of things, you're trying to maintain as much of that muscle mass as you go into your competition. So you have a, a strength phase in there, which is uh, generally slightly lower volume. You're dealing with intensities that are over 70% at this point. Um, and your volume will come down by somewhere between 10 and 50%, just depending on the person, depending on where you're at in the phase. Um, as you progress through the strength phase, this is where you take that new muscle that you've acquired, your, your bigger base, your bigger, your bigger engine, uh, and you're working on building it up a little bit more. So you've got this new muscle, you're trying to refine it to express the strength a little bit more, uh, in that muscle. Uh, and that's, that's kind of in a nutshell, your Main season and then your competition day is what you're getting ready for in the last uh say four to twelve weeks of your training cycle, and that's your peak. So you've taken the strength that you've built uh in your in your strength phase from the muscle that you built in your hypertrophy phase, and you're working on just technical refinement. So you're working on getting used to dealing with those weights that are 85 to 105 percent, because presumably you've gotten stronger. Um, but yeah, so you're dealing with with uh the the technical component to lifting heavy weights because there's walking out a back squat at 60% and walking out a back squat at hundred percent and trying to squat, them both are very, very different things. So getting comfortable with doing those, uh, letting your, your body and building up to the expression of that strength, instead of just being able to, uh, do a set of five, you're getting more specific with your training and trying to do, um, your, your sets, your sets of one, your one rep maxes. Um, and, Generally speaking, in peaking, you're not going to be gaining a ton of strength. That's why you want to spend more of your time in that 70 to 85, 70 to 90 percent uh, range. But uh, yeah, so in a, in a nutshell, with periodization, you want to build a bigger base with your hypertrophy, build bigger muscles, um, get those muscles working better by by doing some strength work, and then you're going to progress into a peaking block to just get the last little bit of refinement out of it, so that you're ready for game day.
0: And how long typically? And I know it's different for everybody, but how long typically would you, kind of in your mind, would you want to program each of those phases? How long would they be? Uh,
1: so let's let's say there's no competition on the horizon, and your competition is just at the end of the block. That's my that's my perfect world here. Um, so with that, you'd probably spend. Uh, I like to spend eight to twelve weeks on hypertrophy, um, with newer. Uh, uh, See, yeah, newer newer lifters who don't have as much muscle mass who could stand to gain a little bit more. Um, and then another eight to 12 weeks on strength and anywhere between four and eight weeks on peaking, just trying to get it to where they are at a peak and then go back to some strength or go back to hypertrophy again, uh, depending on where they're at in the training cycle. But, uh, it's not always that perfect. Generally, you've got two or three or sometimes four competitions in a year. So you have to start picking where you want to put your, your training volume. So, um, let's say you have three, three meets a year, which is what is that? 52 yeah, 17 weeks or something That's between, 17 weeks, yeah. yeah, 17 weeks or so between, between meets, right? So let's say you've got 17 weeks, you just came off the competition. Um, and you've got a a newer power lifter who, who should be gaining a little bit more muscle mass. So I'm probably going to spend about half of my time with them doing uh, hypertrophy stuff, because they're going to get make the biggest benefits just from gaining muscle. They'll, these are the clients who tend to gain strength as they gain muscle, The the decrease in specificity doesn't really Uh, impact their strength too much. These are people who are first strength block. You're hitting PRs right away. It's, you don't have to recondition to the heavier weights. Uh, So I'd probably spend about half my time with hypertrophy with them. Uh, So we're at eight weeks, let's call it. Um, I'm going to spend another maybe six, five or six weeks on strengths and then three or four weeks on peaking, um, depending on them and depending how much time we spend on strengths. Uh, For somebody who maybe has filled out a weight class already, that's where uh and they're lean I should say like they they they're holding as much muscle mass as they should be holding in in a given weight class uh, provided we're not going up a weight class these are your intermediate advanced athletes uh probably spending maybe 3 to 5 weeks give or take we'll call it 4 uh on hypertrophy with them just cuz uh for them it's the hypertrophy block is really in this scenario less about gaining a ton of muscle mass cuz you're not going to gain a ton in 4 weeks um and it's more about Just disrupting the, uh, it's called adaptive resistance. So by doing the competition lifts all the time, your body can uh, grow very accustomed to it and it desensitizes to them. So you're not going to get as good of a result out of them. So by doing something slightly different, whether it's higher volumes, higher reps, slightly different exercises, um, you're going to give the body a chance to resensitize the competition movements. From there, um, got 13 weeks left. So I'd probably spend minus four, five, six, yeah uh six to eight weeks on strength and six seven weeks on peaking maybe down to four if they peak really quickly and they're smaller um that's a little bit more dependent but probably a little bit closer about 25 percent of the time with hypertrophy a little closer to 50 percent of your time with your strength and then the last 25 ish percent of the time with uh with the peak
0: pretty good stuff right there folks we're talking about periodization for powerlifting lifting and the- if this is not your thing, if, if this kind of this kind of science is not your thing, you probably just you're probably just napping. So wake up a little bit. But for those of us in in this field and who are, have been interested in this kind of stuff, um, and I have I have a pretty deep interest in science. Period. But um, I'm fascinated by the way these kinds of, of programs can can change from person to person, right? And how much how much variability there is um, with people with with individuals, right? Based on things like desire and and their long-term outlook and their, uh, their approach, you know, emotional approach to things and then how the and the nutrition as well. So, um, I thank you very much for that. And you, and are um, you, I know you gave us a very general description of adaptive resistance and it's something that, um, I think it's a topic that really deserves to be talked about a little bit more because it isn't just for power lifters, right? I mean, it happens to other, other athletes and other people, if they remain on similar types of movement programs for a long period of time. So would you, just briefly just define adaptive resistance again for my, for my listeners so that they can kind of get that isolated for themselves.
1: Yeah. So, uh, adaptive resistance is just basically the idea that, uh, the longer you do a specific task, the, the less adaptation you're going to get to it, the more your body's going to fight you on it and it's desensitized to it. So, um, if you squat for a year, you're probably not going to run into this. Um, but if you've been doing this for Four years, eight years, ten years—the longer you do it, and you've never took a break from doing exactly that same movement, you're probably going to run into adaptive resistance, where your body uh, puts the brakes on the progress a little. So,
0: yeah. So we could actually say it's kind of the dark side of the said principle, right? So. Oh yeah, hundred (laughs) percent. Yeah,
1: you need you need specificity and overload first, but if if you overapply those, you're going to start violating the principles of uh, uh, fatigue management, and and you're going to run into adaptive resistance for sure.
0: So with your more experienced lifters, when, when they start to get some adaptive, you start to notice some of that resistance. They're not getting the adaptation they used to get. Um, what's the first go-to for you? What do you do first?
1: Um, well, I mean, the first thing we're going to do is take a deload, probably, making sure that's that's not the cause and they're not just overtrained. Um, from there, if they haven't been powerlifting for a long time and they're just more prone to it, uh, we're probably going to make some very small changes in in the training, like just changing training intensities. Uh, and training volumes. So that's going to be my first go-to. Uh, the idea is I want to take the smallest step away from the competition movement that we can uh, and still make progress. Um, so the more adaptive resistance you have, the bigger a step we have to take away to, to resensitize you to the main stuff. Uh, so if somebody's, uh, like I said, not been doing this as long and they've never had really a break from the main movements, we're going with a volume phase maybe. We're going with a lighter phase of training. Uh, and work on just developing some other aspects of the powerlifting training. Um, If they're bigger and stronger and they've been doing this longer, um, we're going to go with with a bigger change. So instead of changing just your volumes, you might see some differences in exercise selection. Something as small as instead of doing a bench press, maybe you're doing a long pause bench press or a spottal press where you're pausing a couple inches off your chest Um, or something even as big as going to completely different grips or training push-ups more um, more dumbbell benching or different bars even things like a football bar or a buffalo bar um, that kind of stuff
0: good stuff there so you just you just said something that kind of piqued my interest a little bit it, it, I read a lot of stuff and I, and I read a lot of stuff I probably shouldn't read as much too, but I read a lot <laughs> of stuff um, in, in the, the lifting world in general about grip right and where where on the bar how on the bar you know, speaking of benching, like, you know, stiff wrist grip, flex wrist grip, monkey grips, all these different types of grips. Um, how much, really, how much variability do you get from changing your grip? And is there, a, is there a way for you to know when grip is the issue? I just want to clear this up for my listeners. Is This, this is for <laughs> bench? Well, it's not a bench, but I mean, just in general, deadlift, bench, I mean, I know a deadlift. The grip can be a, can make a big difference, right? If you go sure. from a standard grip to a sumo grip and things like that. But let's let's think about pushing movements, particularly because I think that's sure. the, that's the big place where everybody bitches about it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I would say the grip takes a little bit of experimenting. I find most of the time people that are around one and a half times shoulder width ish with their hands, give or take a couple inches, um, that's generally where they're going to be strongest. Um, for the most part, I would say if you're at a pretty average grip right now, if you go out an inch, you're probably going to be a little bit stronger with a month of training on it. Um, I There's a couple people that I train who are stronger with a closer grip, but they're, that's two out of a lot uh, is, is probably the best way to put it. Like There's two specific examples I can think of right now, um, and they both have gymnastics backgrounds It is really all it is. So their triceps Absolutely. and their shoulders are just incredibly strong, and so they're – Uh, a little bit of an exception to the rule. But those people exist. Uh, Closer grip is better for some people. Uh, Sometimes it's really a necessity just from a shoulder health standpoint. Uh, Their shoulders can't tolerate uh, the wider grip benching and the volumes they need to do with it. Um, In terms of like a flexed wrist or a straight wrist or Japanese grip and all that kind of stuff, it's a real thing. Um, Japanese grip? (laughs) Japanese grip.
0: Uh, Um, Japanese grip, is that the one with the thumbs up? Because we would call it a monkey grip.
1: Uh, monkey grip suicide grip yeah Japanese grip is where you're you kind of rotate your hands in a little bit so you're holding the bar like this and you're kind of just holding on with your fingertips and the bar sitting there and what it does is it kind of brings your wrist out a little wider um, without having your index fingers and your thumbs be further apart so you can still stay technically legal to the powerlifting rules because there's rules on how wide you can grip um, but you can create more mechanical advantage by technically having your wrists wider and creating more shoulder abduction which shortens the range of motion by uh some number of millimeters
0: so someone says in the text some number of millimeters just random random yeah exactly (laughs) yeah um i have have to admit to something and i'm admit to you and my listeners i have never heard of a japanese grip before i've never
1: oh i just heard about it it, like last year it's it's new to me as well
0: i'm gonna i'm gonna go find that and and read it now i have to go look it up so yeah, I don't I,
1: I don't. I don't even know if that's the formal name. That's just how I've heard of it. But you look okay. at a lot of the world lef- world level Japanese benchers, and you'll see that grip. Because um, okay. a lot of them are max grip. They look like they're hugging the bar almost, um, and their fingers are almost turned out because of the the rotation on their shoulders. But um, it works for some. Um, yeah. So in terms of stiff wrist or monkey grip or or folding the wrist back and how far to hold it into your hand. Um, there's a small range that I'll work in with most people. Um, most of the people I see that bench with their wrist cocked back are doing it cause they were never taught to grip properly. Not because it provides them with a really big mechanical advantage. Um, for the most part, I'd say, try to sit it right around the, like the crevice of your thumb and up near about an inch below your pinky knuckle. And that's going to sit it where you can straighten out your wrist enough where your knuckles will be in line with the, the bottom of your forearm. Um. Yeah. And that's going to give you enough range of motion in your wrist, enough range of motion in your shoulder to be able to move well. Um, every now and then we'll get somebody who kind of goes to the other end of the spectrum. they will overstiffen their wrist and the back of their their knuckles is in line with the top of their forearm. And that kind of puts the bar in front of your wrist, just with uh, like just where your the center of your hand is. So if you're here, that's aligned, but there that gets put in front of you. And then they'll get folded out of the bench press and their elbows shoot back really quick and you'll end up with shoulder problems pretty quick and your, your range of motion gets bigger. So it's pretty, it's pretty disadvantageous going that way. Um, But those are people who've generally read, don't bend your wrist backward on a bench and they'll just overcompensate.
0: Overcompensate. Sure. I I think it's one of the areas, you know, in terms of of finding a natural grip, it's one of the areas where kettlebells can be a huge help, right? So if you teach a bottoms up grip on a kettlebell, I think people are going to find a fairly natural for lack of a better phrase, straight wrist position, right? Cause you really can't fold your wrists back when you're doing a bottoms up work with a kettlebell because you just can't, it'll fall over. But I yeah. think it's one of those areas where kind of letting that kettlebell create some intuitive and reflexive responses in, in, in exercise move, movement can transfer over to other things and particularly in benching. And I, I, and the reason I ask about benching is cause I have, I have a bunch of football players and that's, you know, if they could bench every day, they would. Um, but when I ask them to do things like kettlebell bottoms up grip stuff, it kind of throws them for a loop. And right. yet, that's usually when we break their plateaus. You know, they've they've been stuck at that at that plateau for a couple of weeks, and all of a sudden they get that extra five pounds. And we generally it's, it's been something we've added, right? Uh, more so than volume changes and things like that. And so we've added maybe a, a, a some grip work or some hanging work like have them do flexed arm hangs, things like that, that force them to get better, stronger grip. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then that bottoms up kettlebell seems to be the one that seems to be the big modifier. As far as I'm concerned, if I throw that, oh, in, yeah. things happen.
1: Yeah. I I really like, uh, I do some training with kettlebells, maybe less now than I used to. Um, but for, for little things like you were mentioning with the bottoms up kettlebell grip, things like a bottoms up kettlebell screwdriver is awesome. Mm-hmm. Cause that's going to stick you at that same angle that you're benching at and you're, uh, you're kind of becoming one with the grip where everything, your hand and your wrist and the weight and everything moves together instead of having that that jankiness. And I, I like 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 I like that you brought up the kettlebells because it, it they're a great tool at just feeling where you want to be. And for having your shoulders set back and getting the rotation that you need in a bench press, the uh, kettlebells are an awesome, awesome tool for that.
0: And once you flip that bottom up, they're pretty unforgiving. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> not a lot of room for, for error there, so for sure. Um, so... I know you have a background in nutrition. You said you have a background in cooking. I, I didn't know that. That's fascinating to me, by the way. Um, talk to me a little bit about um, your, your nutritional philosophy, kind of where you come down for your, for your lifting athletes and then for your general population folks. Um, and like, how, what kind of work do you do with those folks? I mean, being, being a cook has got to bring you a different perspective, but um, just give my listeners an idea of, you know, kind of is there a different approach for your athletes than there is for your gen pop people? Um, and how does that differ?
1: okay um so with my lifting athletes depends but i'll generally have uh, this is where 80 percent of them are going to land um is i'll generally get them just tracking using something like uh my fitness pal or something at the end of the day i'm my philosophy with them is you're athletes you're going to train like one, you might as well eat like one too because if you're not you're shortchanging yourself and it, if you start asking me why you're not making progress and you're not tracking your diet and working on uh, getting enough carbs, fats, proteins, and calories or going over or under or whatever it may be, um, that's where we're going. I'm not changing your program until we fix that. You got to deal with the recovery side of things, too, uh, in the same way that you're going to get six to eight hours of sleep a night and those other recovery modalities, managing stress. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, with my. General population people, there's more shades to that equation. So, um, <laughs> it, in my perfect world, I just have everybody starting out with tracking macros um, on my fitness pal or something, just because it's, it's simple. It creates a little bit of a, an education around what's in their food. And I really like it for that. Um, and then with my general population people, I'll generally have them once they understand what's going on scale away from using tracking apps. So instead of tracking all their macros, maybe they go down to tracking their protein and their calories. Uh, and then oh, you do it for long enough and you have a general idea on, hey, I need this much of X to get to where I need to be. Uh, and then maybe you don't track anymore formally, but you ha- you know roughly speaking what's in your food. You have a good idea of what portion sizes look like and you've gotten to your goal and you're just on maintenance now for general population. So you can eyeball it so to speak. Um, And that's something that really goes on over maybe a year to two years, depending on the person, depending on how much they know about food beforehand. Um, So that's my perfect role with my general population people. But uh, as I'm sure you know, that doesn't always happen. Um, So in the same way that finding a a training implementation that works for me and works for my clients uh, with general population, uh, same thing goes for nutrition. So... um, a lot of times it ends up being, hey, here's your diet. You've been roughly maintaining. Let's make these changes. So we end up going with mostly generally a, an increase on focus on protein. Make sure you have a good protein source at each of your meals. Um, and then if we're going back to your, your sample client who wanted to lose 25 pounds, maybe you're having a smaller meal on two of these. Uh, if you're eating four meals a day, maybe two of your meals are smaller and you try to keep the other two the same. Um, and that's just kind of the other end of the spectrum from your macro accounting where somebody either doesn't want to, or finds it cumbersome or can't do it well, where they're not, they might not be giving you totally accurate data. Cause as we know, a lot of people tend to under report, um, really? no way. Uh, oh yeah. No, oh come yeah.
0: Come on. I've never seen that happen.
1: <laughs> Those Oreos are like 20 <laughs> calories a piece, right?
0: Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and if you have them um, diet Coke, there's no calories, right? That's another way it works.
1: It, ac- it actually gets rid of all the calories in the McDonald's fries. You just had too. Uh,
0: you know, and, and I heard that if you drink diet Coke and eat celery, you actually remove calories from your body. I, I yeah. just just read a study on that sponsored by the diet Coke and celery foundation.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, I mean, sometimes tracking is not a great thing for for the client either, where it's just, uh, they, they're not really aware of, of portion sizes and they're under reporting or uh, they're just not putting everything down at which point that's a separate issue altogether. But um, trying to find something that works for the, for the client, whether it be more subjective uh, in the sense of, Hey, have less here, have less here. Let's have more protein here, or we're going more qualitative uh, with, Hey, you have exactly this much food, hit these numbers, you'll lose weight. You'll get to your goals.
0: Interesting. So, so you're, as with I, th- I think the largest number of fairly successful professionals in our, in our field, you're fairly flexible on what so I think I think if I get it if you get am getting it right um, rigid on the outcomes on the goals right yes have goals we're, we're rigid on those goals but we're fluid on the details yep. as long as they all fit within it within a, a healthy you know and, and, and sensible range right
1: yeah hundred percent okay. I mean I've been quoted saying this a million times now I'm sure my clients are probably rolling their eyes if they listen to this but if it works it works Um yeah, there you go. That that's really it. There's a there's a, a million ways to skin a cat, and if if it gets you to your goals and it does so safely and effectively, who am I to say it's wrong?
0: Excellent stuff right there. So, um, last kind of formal question, and then we'll play the lightning round, and we'll, we'll let you get on with your day. Um, what's the what do you think is the biggest challenge facing our profession in the next three to five years?
1: Hmm. Um, give me a little I'm bit more off the wall uh, right? so. in, in what aspect.
0: So I think as, as a, as a fitness profession, right. So, and, and I'm pick, I'm taking it as a very broad brush, like just yeah. all aspects of the fitness profession. We faced, you know, we faced the challenges of how to, how to get technology, how to integrate technology into our, into our field. Right. We faced the, the challenge of, you know, the encroachment of the medical fit and physical therapy field into what we do. Yeah. Um, those are things that I've, that I've had other guests say that they thought were, you know, some of the big challenges that we've, we've faced. What do you think looking at, looking at your practice and looking at the field and, and you, you know, you're in some of the same groups that I'm in. Um, you see what pe- the questions people are asking. Um, what do you think, what do you think we're facing in the next three to five years that we, we're going to, we're going to have to deal with as a profession?
1: Okay. Yeah. All right. That, that helps me answer this a little bit more. Um, so it kind of touches on the whole, uh, addition of the, the medical field, physical therapy field into this, but, um, including perhaps a little bit more applicable information with, uh, the initial PT certification. So, um, in all honesty, the barrier to becoming a personal trainer is pretty low. Like it's, for me, it was a weekend course. Um. The, some of them are, are longer courses. I know there's a PCPTI here It does like a six week course and it's really hands-on and uh, they have a lot of practical information, but a lot of them are, here's a book, read it um, mm-hmm. and go train people, get them stronger. And none of that's wrong, but uh, it, it leaves people kind of needing a little bit more knowledge. So um, I think that something that is gonna be challenging the field that we'll see coming in or I'd like to see coming in at least is uh, having more applicable information on instead of just hey here's a lot of information in a perfect world um, how do you problem solve and including that kind of stuff into personal training so hey somebody has X problem or here's where you want to look for your assessments a little bit more um, as opposed to it hurts go foam roll it stretch it get, keep getting them stronger because um, yeah, it's not it's not a perfect answer. <laughs>
0: I agree. No, I completely agree. Um, Interesting. That's a very interesting answer, actually. Very thoughtful. So I appreciate that. Um, I'm on with Matthew Taylor from Vancouver, B.C., StrongerUPT.com is his website. Uh, I'm going to let him give you all of his contact info when we get to the end of the the interview. But um, this is a Happy Hour Friday interview, Matthew, and that means that uh, today is, um, you know, we do the lightning round on these shows. So um, I'll do two things. First, I'll give you the option as to whether or not you want to play. I'll I'll describe how it works, and you can let me know. I'm going to ask you two questions. I'll give you 30 seconds to answer each one after I ask it. Um, They are largely unrelated to fitness, although I think I have one that's tangentially related to fitness for you today. Um, I generally choose the questions while I'm talking to my interviewees. So um, I have 15 or 20 stock questions that I like, and they're they're fun to answer. Um, But sometimes one pops up and I say, you know what? I'd like to know this from this person. So kind of throw that out there. Are you up for playing? Let's go. Let's do it. All right. All right. Perfect. So first question, um, the, the best slash worst excuse you ever got from a client for anything in your entire career. Oh,
1: oh, (laughs) I I know exactly. I know exactly what this one is. Um, so it was, it was an excuse for not showing up to a session. Um, and it, 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 it's not as funny if you don't know the guy, but it was really funny uh, even outside of that. So, um, my feel client, free to put
0: context by the way
1: yeah so yeah i'm, I'm just gonna kind of give a little bit of context with this so uh my client is a performer so he he uh does like musical performance uh and as such you know he he enjoys going out and, and partying and doing all that stuff as well and that's fine you can you can add that stuff into a balanced lifestyle if you're conscious with the details um so anyways it was a oh i think it was a thursday morning uh i was supposed to be training him at noon. So he would have texted me at about 1145. Um, There's a town, there's a town uh, about 45 minutes away, like par from where I train called Coquitlam. And uh, so he texted me, he's like, hey, man, I just woke up at this girl's house. I I don't really know where I am. Uh, I'll text you. He's about 35. Um, And I'm also super hungover. There is no way I'm going to make it. Uh, Can we just cancel the session? And so, about forty-five minutes later, he texts me and goes, "Yeah, I'm in Coquitlam, but I don't know where my car is either." <laughs> and I, like, I couldn't even be mad at the guy. I was just like, you know, you go get it, man. This is
0: too funny to to be
1: angry about.
0: Oh my god, that's a great story. Yeah,
1: just just like got the text. I'm like, yeah, man. I'll see you
0: Friday, dude. <laughs> Have a that's, good one. That's a that's a great story. That's a great story. I love I love those kind of stories because the the yeah. excuses that come with stuff like that you just can't beat. And you just oh, yeah. can't read that stuff. All right. That's, that's a great answer. All right. Question number two. Um, and this one I ask of a lot of my guests cause I think it's a lot of fun and you can answer. It's, it's a, a two kind of segmented question. You can answer either of these two questions or both of them. It's totally up to you. Um, the first part of the question would be who is your favorite Disney princess and why the second part would be who is your favorite superhero and why you can answer either or both. It's up to you.
1: I'm going both. Um, favorite Disney princess. Mulan, she's a badass. Just like 10 out of 10 favorite one for sure. Um, And then favorite superhero. Mm, Okay, I might catch a little bit of flack for this, but just because some people don't consider Batman a superhero um, because he's kind of just a normal person with a ton of money. Um, But I like Batman. Pretty, pretty sweet. Just kind of, I don't know how to, to best describe this. So he... Like he doesn't have anything special. He just goes and and does it. He sees a task that needs to be done and he takes it upon him to go and do it. Uh, it's not that, and, and other superheroes do that, but it's not that he was blessed with some huge gift. It's just, let's let's go, let's get at it, find a way.
0: There you go. Batman, B- Mulan, because she's a badass and Batman, because apparently he's rich and task oriented. Uh, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> okay. perfect. We'll take,
1: perfect uh, description in a nutshell, what I said, yeah. Yeah,
0: we'll take that. And he's a badass. That doesn't hurt right. either. So very cool, very cool. Uh, Matt, um, tell my listeners and my viewers how they can get a hold of you um, if they have questions or if they're in your area, how they can get a hold of you to come train with you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you can uh, reach me. You can find me anytime on Instagram at strongerupt. Uh, my personal Instagram, if you want to see just my general shenanigans and dog and me being a meathead, uh, is snrygo. It's it's an old joke, too old to explain um but so there's that uh my website is strongerupt.com pt is in personal training uh and you can find me on facebook as matthew taylor that's yeah that's it if you want to get in touch with me dm or facebook messenger is generally easiest uh email will get you through too but you got to go through the website for that i figure most people are on instagram anyways
0: and if you're listening in the vancouver bc area and you want to get stronger i i have uh, stalked matthew's social media and his website i will tell you that the guy knows his stuff um there's no question in my mind that if I, if I were in the area, I'd be probably working on his gym, not mine. Uh, <laughs> just cause I'd like somebody to be able to tell me, Hey, what's wrong with your deadlift? You know, it wouldn't hurt. Yeah. Um, but I, I really do appreciate you being on today. This was a fantastic interview and a lot of fun folks. If you, if you're interested in powerlifting, how it applies to you as a general population, general fitness enthusiast, um, and, and all the stuff that goes, goes along with that. Definitely reach out to Matt. Um, get connected, get hooked up. Um, and, and again, like, and I think Matt, I think I speak for you when I say that most of us in this, in this field, we're more than willing to, to, to help people. We want to answer their questions, help them be better. Um, whether they're training in our gym or not, you know, we're always yep. here to help and ask, answer questions, Yeah, so,
1: help people get better.
0: Absolutely. That's what we're, that's what we're here for. So, um, thank you very much for being here today, Matt. I really do appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: And uh, I want to thank my listeners again for being here with me. You guys are, are the reason that we do this, that I do this. Uh, this is Coach Phil Houston. This has been the Four Pillar Fitness Podcast, and you know how to reach me. I'm on Instagram at Coach Phil Houston. Just spell the last name, right? H U E S T O N. I'm also on Twitter at Phil Houston, although I don't know why anymore. It's become a real mess. Uh, of course, my website is coachphilhouston.wordpress.com. Brand new domain name coming very, very soon. Thanks again for being with us today, and as always, keep the faith and keep after it.